0: Stop to listen. You can hear their hearts beating loud. Can't keep those California Indians down. Hello everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. From Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith
1: these new technologies allowed the beginnings of what i've been terming global police state that is applying advanced technologies to new systems of social control and of repression and of warfare and that's critically important to what's going on now you're getting that showcased in in portland you're getting that showcased in the united states with the suppression of this mass rebellion because technology could liberate us but it is in the hands of the ruling groups and therefore it's used for our oppression
0: On today's program, news highlights from indigenous nations and part two of our conversation on authoritarianism, fascism, the decline of capitalism, and American democracy. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the low I can blow. So we want to remind listeners that uh, KPFK is celebrating its 61st anniversary and acknowledging its existence and its resistance to the corporate mass media landscape. And certainly, American Indian Airwaves has been part of the KPFK's not only longevity as an institution for alternative voices, but we've been a staple contribution over the decades and contributing to the wide range of perspectives and voices on KPFK, and KPFK cannot continue to operate unless it conducts fund drives as we are engaged in right now and so we want to remind listeners that they can donate to the station they can visit the station's website at kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735 and make a monthly donation in five to ten dollar increments as part of the kpfk sustainer circle and the one premium item that we are focusing on here in American Indian Airwaves. And of course, we want to remind listeners, there's a ton of premium items to choose from on the KPFK website. But our focus is Greg Pallas' new book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters. It's a $125 premium. And it's an insightful, important, and timely and relevant book as America approaches the forthcoming presidential elections this November 4th.
2: I want to just to want to repeat, everybody, thank you for our listeners once again to turn it into American United you know, Ways. But the number, I, once again, is 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735 or 818 818-985- 985 K-P-F-K. In addition to that, Larry, we have, and Fabiana, we have uh, online kpfk.org. You can visit the website and go to those particular items that you like, membership, T-shirts, mugs. We got it all in KPFK. Larry and Fabiana, I want to, we're we talking about the How Trump Stole 2020, the um, Craig Pouse's book. I want to read a little poem by John Trudell that I think it's an appropriate. It's called Endure. The people cry out, tears of anger, tears of sorrow, flowering, giving birth to resistance, young ones to remember struggle. For the people cry out, tears of happiness, tears of joy, washing the pain, cleaning the spirit, giving strength. The generations remembering the past to rebuild the future for weeping is another way of laughing and resisting and outlasting the enemy. Professor Williams Robinson's talk about the enemy, talking about world-class domination, talking about this new vision of the world, which we are doing by voting and challenging the defying the power. On page 259 on Palace's book, he talks about this notion of power, Larry. He talks about, it's about power, the book. It's not only about voting, it's about power. And he described this power on that page, 259, about describing Brian Kemp and his contributors to that. And that contributor, Georgia Pacific, goes on to description of that. We're talking about this power, monetary power, and that's why we're asking for your donation for a pledge for this book, How Trump Stole 2020, by Craig Pallas, about... What we're trying to do here in American Indian Airways to Get Your Pledge, whether it be organization, community, individuals, or regardless of where we are, as far as geography within Southern California, the largest concentration of economic reservation within the whole continental United States. And Larry and Fabiana, I think it's important to once again mention this number, to give the voice of the people, 818-985-5735.
3: In addition to what you were both saying, I wanted to add, as you're calling 818-985-5735 or 818-985-KPFK, to remind you also that American Indian Airwaves has been on the air since 1973. And so while we're celebrating 61 years of KPFK, the voice of alternative radio, which you would really rather not do without you should also realize that by supporting american indian airwaves you're supporting grassroots voices being heard throughout the americas as we've done for over 30 years and this is a voice that would not come to you if it weren't for kpfk and so we're offering this premium gift for your contribution And we might remind you that for a $120 contribution for Greg Pallas' book, you are really giving $0.33 a day to KPFK in order to listen to these airwaves.
0: And now we resume our regular programming with a brief news segment. In a unanimous decision, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals last week in Oneida Nation versus Hobart confirmed that the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin still exist based on the 1838 treaty with the Oneida. Influenced by the legal precedent established in a recent U.S. Supreme Court case, McGirt versus Oklahoma, where the U.S. Supreme Court reaffirmed the Muscogee Creek Nation's treaty rights regarding their citizens and criminal matters, Judge David Hamilton wrote, The reservation was created by treaty and it can be diminished or disestablished only by Congress and Congress has not done either of those things. For more than a decade, the village of Hobart has been attempting to extricate itself from the Oneida Nation despite the village's location within the Oneida Nation's Boundaries. For more than a decade, Hobart Village leaders have hired members of the anti Indian organization Citizens Equal Rights Alliance or Citizens Equal Rights Foundation, a Gresham, Wisconsin based organization which works to terminate Native American treaty rights and sovereignty. Citizens Equal Rights Alliance former chair from 2002 to 2007 and member Elaine Wellman was also the director of the Community Development and Tribal Affairs of Hobart from 2008 to 2015 in which the village of Hobart vigorously and regularly fought the United Nation on land into trust, taxation, sovereignty, and other issues. Prior to chairing the Citizens' Equal Rights Alliance, Lane Wilman served as the executive director of Citizen Stand-Up Committee, a local Toppenish, Washington-based group that opposed the Yakima Nation's sovereignty. The 1838 Treaty with the Oneida nonetheless established the United Nation, located just west of Green Bay, the third largest city in the state of Wisconsin. And in a federal penitentiary in Coleman, Florida, human rights prisoner and American Indian Movement member Leonard Peltier, citing unreported health issues, has removed his name from the Party for Socialism and Liberation ticket. Despite being incarcerated for the past 44 years, Peltier, age 75, was on the party's presidential ticket as the vice presidential candidate. According to Peltier's statement issued to Gloria Lariva, who's running for president of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, Peltier states, I know this is a huge disappointment to you, as it is to mine, that I have to drop out of the campaign with Gloria Lariva. My medical problems are not getting any better. I need to try to get home or at least closer. If so, it would be easier to get out. So please forgive me if I have disappointed any of you. I did not intend to, nor was I dropping out because I did not believe in it. I'm seriously hurting. Just know I love you young people who support me. You're awesome. Thank you for your support and love. Doshka, Leonard Peltier. Peltier did not specifically name the medical condition that's causing him to be seriously hurting. Over the years, Peltier has had protracted health problems, including diabetes and heart problems, which have raised alarm and concern for those seeking his release from prison for the wrongful convictions of killing two FBI agents at Oglala on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in 1975. Since the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak and with support from the International Indian Treaty Council, the National Congress of American Indians and other human rights organizations and activists, demands have increased for Leonard Peltier's immediate release. Even U.S. Representatives Deb Holland, a Democrat from New Mexico, and Raul Gravala, a Democrat from Arizona, in an April 24th letter asked for Peltier's release. Leonard Peltier had applied for a compassionate release and was denied on May 1st with a not at this time as the only explanation given. In Montana, a new bill was introduced that would permanently protect 130,000 acres of Badger 2 medicine, sacred and traditional lands of the Blackfeet Nation and now part of the Lewis and Clark National Forest. Is part of President Donald Trump's America First agenda, which includes opening up federal lands and indigenous lands and ocean sanctuaries to certain sectors of the non-renewable energy industry, Trump's administration has proven that monument designations can easily be removed. The Badger-2 Medicines Protection Act seeks to change that. For the past 40 years, the Badger-2-Medicine area has been under constant threat from oil and gas development, and William Perry Pendley, lead counsel for the company suing for oil and gas drilling rights in the Badger-2-Medicine area, was recently appointed acting director of the United States Bureau of Land Management, the agency that controls oil and gas on public lands. A 2018 coalition report estimates that U.S. federal subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, according to the National Resource Defense Council and other organizations, was $27.4 billion. In addition, Penley previously ran a legal organization called the Mountain States Legal Foundation, which receives significant funding from the oil, gas, and mining industries while suing the Department of Interior on behalf of oil and gas prospectors and dismissing climate change advocates as kooks. The Blackfeet Nation drafted legislation the Badger II Medicine Protection Act would permanently protect its cultural homeland and was recently introduced into Congress by Democrat Montana Senator John Tester. The act would permanently protect 130,000 acres of the Badger-2 medicine as a cultural heritage area, a first-of-its-kind designation that could potentially usher in a new national system for protecting public lands throughout Indian country. And a quick COVID-19 update. According to data from Indian Health Service, Tribal and Urban Indian Organizational Facilities, as of August 3rd of 2020, there are 33,417 COVID-19 test positive cases that have been reported. The top seven regions with large urban Native American populations or indigenous nations with COVID-19 test positive cases are the Navajo Nation with 10,600. Phoenix, Arizona with 7,920. Oklahoma City with 5,178. Nashville, Tennessee with 1,686. The Great Plains region with 1,677. Then Portland, Oregon with 1,603 and Albuquerque, New Mexico, with 1,574 COVID-19 test-positive cases. And that includes the news segment here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. want to remind listeners that KPFK is acknowledging and celebrating 61st Anniversary is and its longevity, and it's in providing alternative perspectives and voices. And part of those alternative uh, voices and perspectives in combating forms of social injustice and human rights abuses and civil rights abuses is, of course, American Indian Airwaves providing that grassroots indigenous struggle throughout Mother Earth or Turtle Island. And KPFK cannot provide those the space for the kind of work that we do here on American Indian Airwaves without fundraising. And so with that, we want supporters and listeners to support the station by calling 818-985-5735 or 818-985-KPFK or visiting the station's website at kpfk.org. You can choose from a variety of premium items or you can simply donate monthly as part of KPFK's Sustainer Circle. And the featured premium item that we're focusing here here on American Indian Airwaves is Greg Palace's new book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters. That's $125 premium. The book is relevant. It's critically important. And in an age of COVID-19, where there's a lot of discussion about the potential process for the 2020 presidential elections and its outcome book is crucially important in understanding how the Trump administration and the Trump's campaign is systematically working to prevent certain eligible voters from participating in this year's 2020 presidential elections. And just to remind everybody that not every state permits citizens to actually mail in votes. So only 34 states have mail-in votes um, as a process for participating in the election, and therefore the remaining states at this point are going to require people to go out and vote. That's if the president's campaign, based on Greg Palace's book, doesn't steal your vote or preempt you from voting.
2: Yes, the book in itself is, is extremely important. There's an interview by Stacey Abrams, who is the founder of the the New Georgia Project. And it gives you an explanation of what this power structure like I mentioned before, Georgia Pacific within Georgia, or with the state of Georgia, and Brian Kemp, which is a, an interesting individual. He goes into that. But, but the bottom line, I think, Larry, is important for our listeners in Southern Cal, as West of the so, so-called other states that are the swinging states, as it were, but the notion of power, Larry, and the question of is power achieved by voting and participation, or is power achieved? Through class dominance. And he explores that in a, a different type of manner, Larry, by suing the government, by getting information about cross checking, about tallying of individuals, about eliminating thousands upon thousands of individuals from the voting list throughout the different states. And he, he mentions that. Uh, Greg Powers has mentioned that whole, that whole process and that whole manipulation and that whole notion of control and a dominance by the Republican Party at the same time. What's our role in it? What's our role? The role of how do we get that power? How do we influence that power? And at the same time, the question of the dominance of the capital class dominance versus the dominance of the people, we the people. And so by getting this book, And by phoning 818-985-5735, that's 818-985-5735. Like you said, Larry, about KPFK.org, go to the website. And like my dear friend who passed away, Corey Duvin, he said, put your money where your ear is. And I think that's important is about you sit in your wallet or it's in your purse or within your satchel or whatever the case might be. Yet yeah, that card in itself is really important and that with $125 amongst other items and other gifts we have, if you go to org, you can be, get a membership. You can get this book. And this is a big thank you. Thank you for listening to American Indian Airways, and thank you for listening to us as we cover so much information, frontline fighters, whether it be in the border, whether it be on this pandemic, whether it be South America, North America, Abayala South, Abayala uh, South, Abayala North. It all depends on your interest, and that in itself is really important. If you want to decolonize, if you want to indigenize, your particular pro approach. Listen to American Indian Airways. The dominance of corporate media outlets is real, and we break the dominance, and we are independent.
3: As Corey used to say, get up off the couch and go to your telephone and dial 818-985-5735. That's eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five. By doing so, you're gonna support indigenous grassroots voices coming to you across the airways of KPFK. And when we're talking about Greg Palace's book for a hundred and twenty-five dollar premium, how Trump Stole Twenty Twenty, it speaks all the more to why we need to have grassroots voices coming to you across the airways of KPFK. Unfortunately, that's not something that can happen for free. The listeners have to pay. That is the only way we can avoid corporate domination. And if we had corporate domination, American Indian Airways wouldn't even be able to broadcast because our content wouldn't be considered in line with the corporate hegemony so call 818-985-5735 to support american indian airways and to support 61 years of kpfk
2: so true, fabiana that we have the american indian airways we've talk to native people, we talk to indigenous people, we talk to first people, however you want to describe it, and that the importance of that and the pro- importance of American Indian Airways, it's about working to break in the myth, this master narrative, and bringing, without breaking the myth of the American dream, no, no new dream is possible. And this dream, a possible world in the future, native people, native leaders, youth, old, elders, whatever whatever the spectrum of indigenous people they speak to a new vision of the future and by phoning this number you're contributing to that vision because you're contributing to us airing these leaders and these youth and these individuals that speak to the future that we all have to embrace by phoning 818-985-5735 that's 818-985-5735 larry
0: And we want to remind uh, listeners that the book that we're focusing on as a thank you gift is Greg Pallas' new book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters. That's $125 premium. Or you can visit the station's website at KPFK.org and choose from a variety or numerous uh, premium items on the station's website. Or you can donate monthly as part of KPFK's Sustainer Circle. Again, the phone number 818-985-5735 or 818-985-KPFK. And now we want to continue with part two of our conversation on American fascism and authoritarianism in the midst of race, pernicious capitalism, and the state violence of American empire. In part two of the conversation with Marcus Lopez and Fabiana Hirsch, they interview Dr. William Robinson, professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's affiliated with the Latin American and Iberian Studies Program and the Global and International Studies Program. William Robinson is the author of the forthcoming book, The Global Police State, and recently wrote the article post-COVID-19 economy may have more robots, fewer jobs, and intensified surveillance. He's published numerous additional books and articles on a variety of issues pertaining to militarism, global capitalism, and repression, and more. And now part two of our in-depth conversation with Dr. William Robinson on American fascism, authoritarianism in the midst of race, pernicious capitalism, and the state violence of American empire. These more privileged white sectors
1: of the working class have been experiencing socioeconomic destabilization under capitalist globalization they're moving downward they're facing rising insecurity and and um, and rising levels of social anxiety and the system and I mean this is Trump's role the system uses that anxiety that insecurity that fear over an uncertain future to whip up racist hysteria and then channel it against scapegoats such as immigrants so that they don't question the system so all around you know all around if Why is it so important for us to be talking about racism and linking it to the socioeconomic system? Because that's the only way to move forward towards our emancipation.
3: William, it's kind of an interesting juncture because here we are in 2020 and in many ways what we need are some similar analyses although placed into 2020 from the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Because I remember from my own personal history of the advances that were made over time, for example, students to dem of a, for a democratic society becoming weather or developments within Each organization that was, like you mentioned, Fred Hampton from the Panthers, the Panthers went through a certain number of changes as well, ideologically in terms of understanding the root causes of racism, and and not only racism, but what you're saying, that if you don't get back to the system as a whole, which was important to name as imperialism, not just capitalism because it's a worldwide phenomenon, which it was then and is now, even more so now, perhaps than then, although it's hard to compare. It's really, really important that men, the leadership needs to develop or relook at some of those roots in order to get to a place where people can understand what's going on and act accordingly.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we always need to remember our past and to take the lessons from the past. So if we suffer from historic amnesia, we are doomed to not move forward. So it's very important to look critically at the 60s. But one thing going on in the 60s is precisely what you said, that with all of the problems, and we can't go back and resurrect the 60s, we're in 2020 now, right? A very different situation. But there was a critique of capitalism. That's why I read that quote from... from, from Fred Hampton. And you're absolutely right. The critique was of capitalism. And of course I'm saying capitalism here, but what we mean is global capitalism. It's a system which now engulfs the entire planet. And it's out of capitalism that imperialism and colonialism spread around around the world. But what did the ruling groups, the powers that be, what did they do and how did they respond to this mass radical upsurge from below in the 1960s and early 1970s? Well, they had a dual strategy. One strategy, of course, was repression. And so that led to systems of mass incarceration and uh, so forth, the de- incredibly beefing up of policing, uh, militarization of policing. That's been going on since the 1970s. The so-called war on drugs is a way of beefing up systems of repression. Uh, the war on youth, the so-called war on gangs, um, et cetera. So that was one strategy that the powers that be used in the wake of the 1960s uprisings was this extension of repression. Right. And we're fighting against that today. But the other strategy they also used is co-optation. They co-opted a portion of the leadership, a portion of the base, and gave them some participation in um uh in, in US capitalism. And so we have that we have that dual response that got us to we where we are in 2020. And that's what ruling groups do. They always use a combination of coercion and consent to quote the Italian uh, socialist from the early 20th century, Antonio Gramsci, a, co- a combination of co-opting a sector and then mass repressing those that cannot or, or, or there's no, uh, no basis for co-optation. But yes, just to conclude, you're absolutely right. We need to think in deep historical terms where we came from, how we got to where we are today. We're speaking with William Robinson, who is a professor at UCSB.
2: We're talking about racism, and its implications, especially within a capitalist society. Professor Robinson, you talked about racism three types. You talked a little bit of a little bit of history of that. In previous articles, you talked about the process of capitalist accumulation. You talked mm-hmm. about, especially now, society during the '60s. Well, we're talking today. We're dealing with a whole new different animal. Still is bear, but it's a bigger bear. It still is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, has fur. And it has claws, but the claws are bigger, the fur is thicker, and so on and so forth. You haven't talked about the level in which the technology and the, the forces of production, if you will, the amount of jobs that are been shipped abroad, the runaway shops, or sweatshops, now they call them some other name. At the same time, the effects of technology on the system of capitalism and its effects to the working class as a whole at the same time, the permanently unemployed, and you mentioned about the pandemic, is creating a permanently unemployed or maybe the unemployed and where the transnational capitalist class has created a very much of a conflict within itself or where the accumulation is being limited. I think we're talking about more of so main street than Wall Street. But yet this phenomena, other than the 60s, And all that go in the 60s is different now. You have capitalist accumulation and its particular financial crisis during the 1980s and almost the complete eradication of the system as we know, a financial system as we know it. Talk about that. Talk about why it's so important to understand that the issue of we're living in new times and because this this question of how we organize is different than previous organization today.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's a brilliant question, more than a question, you know, it's a brilliant and critically important topic of uh, discussion, but let's, Get up to 2020 by very briefly going back to the 1960s and 70s, because at that time of that mass uprising, it forced the ruling groups to redistribute wealth downward through different social programs, through progressive taxation, through opening up mass higher education, and all these different ways. So it ha- just so happened then that the ruling groups is part of this counteroffensive. I mentioned that inside the United States, a combination of cooptation and repression. But the biggest strategy that the powers that be used is to launch globalization. And they used, because you're asking about technology, they used computer and information technology, which came online in the 1970s and 80s, and then really took off in the 1990s and on. So they used this new technology in order to reorganize the whole global economy and society to so launch globalization, de The United States weaken trade unions and weaken workers in the United States and everywhere to really mount this globally integrated production and financial system, moving jobs overseas. Everything you everything um, you said, and of course, as all of this economic restructuring took place in the late 20th century, continuing today, those most impacted. And so, this new wave of technological changes called the fourth industrial. Uh, revolution. It includes artificial or, or autonomously driven vehicles, uh, drones, new systems of uh, surveillance, 3D printing, uh, Zoom. We are speaking on Zoom right now and all of this new forms of communication, remote communication. And this, the, the technology of this fourth industrial revolution is now being used by the ruling groups and the corporations that control it for several things. One is being used to heighten and make more deadly the global police state and unleashed on people in rebellion. But secondly, it's being used to, having to for even a new wave of restructuring of global capitalism in which more and more technology replaces workers and workers are becoming redundant. And so you're getting an acceleration of all of these contradictions and this incredible inequality taking place um, as from 2008 to the present through these new technologies. And the new technologies and its application are being accelerated by the pandemic. Some uh, tens of millions of people shifted to remote work at home through these new technologies. And that's going to be consolidated. What happens when everyone works at home? Well, the possibilities for, for resistance are very much made more difficult because we're atomized, we're disaggregated, we're not together in a collective. And so this is a giant giant discussion, but the role of technology is really central in how the ruling groups have tried to disarticulate mass rebellion from below and have tried to restructure the system once again in a way which will intensify profit-making, but also weaken resistance from, from below. By the way, don't forget, I mean, this has been, you know, in the news The richest people, the richest billionaires in the United States have increased their wealth. The latest data is by over $700 billion in the midst of this pandemic. While 50 million people over the last five months have had to apply for unemployment insurance and hunger is rising and homelessness, et cetera, is rising. So the rich are getting richer. But who are those multi-billionaires, especially the ones that control the new technology, this new wave of fourth industrial revolution technologies um, and digitalization. So, and of course, we didn't have this in the 1960s. This is a new book, Amy.
3: William, one question someone might have as they're listening to your analysis and the conversation going on here, which is extremely important and is by no means over <laughs> because it's a foundational mm-hmm. kind of conversation that needs to continue. But if someone's wondering, okay, so How do I move forward, or how do we, better said, move forward in a way that's going to have real impact, given what you're saying about, as you put it, kind of a friendly critique, but a critique nonetheless of, say, how protests have happened. What would be some ideas about how people might go about it differently?
1: Sure. Well, I don't know about go about differently, but expand the focus, right? And expand the, um, the very broad alliances and coalitions. So, you know, if you, if you ask me, what do, you know, what do we do at this juncture? Obviously, the first is we need to defeat Trump. I mean, absolutely, Trump is pushing us towards what I've been calling 21st century fascism. And I detest Biden as much as everyone else on, on the left. He's, a, he's an agent of corporate capital. He's an imperialist. He's a war criminal. We know all of that. But um, we need to push Biden and his campaign far to the left as possible to get Trump out of office and then take it from there. But the more concrete thing in the midst of this conjuncture of mass anti racist uprising and struggles around all of the fallout for the pandemic, I think it's so urgent to link the anti racist struggle with the working class struggles that have broken out continuously, really since 2018, a new wave of strikes, but intensified right in the midst of the pandemic. The Amazon workers, the McDonald's and fast food workers, the meatpacking workers, the healthcare workers, workers. There have been all of this, you know, working class struggle to address the crisis of the pandemic and the, and the larger issues. And these two struggles have not really linked up. And so I think that's the real critical conjuncture we're at, bringing those two fronts together. This strike for Black lives on July 20, which was linked to unions, is a one step forward. But that's, I think, the biggest thing. And then, of course, I mean, um, in the longer term, I'm not talking about today, tomorrow, but in the longer term, we really need a democratic revolutionary socialist project because we've been talking in this interview about capitalism and in its globalist phases, the most deadly phase of all, uh, is bringing us to extinction. And so you notice I said democratic revolutionary socialist projects. I want to qualify that. Some people call themselves democratic socialists. Some call themselves revolutionary socialists. i 'm bringing the two of them together. we can 't talk about socialism without democracy. we can't have democracy within capitalism, so we need socialism. But what I mean by the revolutionary part of that is we need to overthrow capitalism, not try and tame it little by little. at least that's you know the three pronged um, strategy which I think we need to be talk- talking about here and I think one of you know the most urgent demand in the midst of this pandemic right now is for a mass bailout for workers. We've seen this massive bailout for capital, and it's deepening. And we've been suffering from this neoliberal model of capitalism now for several decades, and it's getting worse and worse. So we need to make sure that as we emerge from the pandemic, and the pandemic will pass, hopefully we'll have a vaccine and by next year we won't have a pandemic, we need to emerge from this pandemic crisis in a way that does not resuscitate the neoliberal model. So obviously we're not going to have a socialist revolution next year. That's pushing, you know, into the future. We need to think about that. But we need to have a different type of capitalism, which involves a major regulation of the market, major curtailing the unlimited power of corporate uh, capital, which has a major uh, ecological environmental component. We need to, as we emerge from this pandemic, Move beyond neoliberalism, have a different type of uh, capitalism, and push for a green New Deal. I mean, so those are some of the ideas that I would, you know, some of the things I would say needs to be on the table at this emergency conjuncture that we're at. Professor Robinson, you
2: mentioned in earlier discussions about this notion of fascism in America. We can see the last uh, episodes of this reaction from the federal government about the stormtroopers within the different cities throughout the United States. A very scary and a very, a crisis within America. A a crisis. My relatives fought in the Second World War, in the First World War. My relatives fought in the Korean War. And uh, they fought in order to defend democracy uh, against fascism within especially the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And with against Nazism and uh, this whole society has and the world has evolved into a world war to death, casualties and destroying the environment and all that goes with it. And then also my father and his generation lived through the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Do you see a parallel of why? Number one, have we learned? From the Great Depression, and secondly, have we learned about this nature of this this fascist nature of what's going on today? How would you comment, especially within the people now that are dressing themselves in the a nonviolent protest? What's going on within the United States?
1: Yeah, well, we might have learned, those of us from below, those of us in struggle, um, your family, our families, but I don't think that the system of capitalism has learned at all. Uh, on the contrary, I think we're at World War III right now, and here I don't mean countries fighting each other, although we might get that too. We might get an extremely dangerous, and we won't survive it, a war between the U.S. and, and, and China. We're standing along those lines, but I'm referring to by World War III is that we're now in the war of the rich and powerful around the world against the poor and the outcast, uh, the global working class uh and that's extremely dangerous and let's remember that fascism when we speak about fascism and you know the 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 unbelievable thing here is that trump is the united states fought against fascism and you just pointed out your your family fought against fascism and trump here is speaking about anti-fascists as the enemy. But what I want to say here is we need to remember that fascism is a response to capitalism in crisis. It was in the 1930s. The whole world was in that Great Depression and some countries turned to fascism as a response. Well, the, 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 the fascists in those countries gained the upper hand and that's something that we're seeing right now. We spoke at uh, part one of this interview a couple weeks ago about, you know, the nature of fascism and the nature of this emerging 21st century fascism. And one of the things I pointed out then is we want to understand fascism as a triangulation between reactionary repressive state power on the one hand, a fascist mobilization in civil society, secondly, uh, and third, bringing together the most right wing sectors of capital for them to continue to accumulate and make profit and grab resources and exploit labor and we're seeing those three come together the paramilitary sent into to um, to portland and now being sent supposedly to chicago uh, and elsewhere is the most you know is extreme Um, militarized right-wing repressive state power. And they've been coming together with this mobilization of the far-right militia, the the boogaloos, the the, uh, anti-immigrant movement, all of this fascist, the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazis, you know, the white supremacists, white nationalists, all of that is the fascist mobilization in civil society. That's not new, but it's gaining strength and they have their hero in Trump. But now that's combining with actual fascism within the state, with this paramilitary mobilization. And uh, we're at an extremely, extremely dangerous moment. And my fear here, you know, I don't want to say this, but I need to analytically. A sector of the ruling groups will not accept fascism. But if, if the mass mobilization from below, a radical upsurge from below, seriously threatens corporate interests, ruling class interests. I fear that significant sectors of the ruling groups will accept a fascist response to put down that threat. Now, that's not where we're at now. The majority of the ruling groups in the United States, maybe even in both parties, especially the Democratic Party, uh, the political elite, and the majority of the corporate elite don't want fascism at this point. Their strategy is co-optation and mild reform, along with more limited repression. But if we start really threatening the system, and we need to, I fear that more of these, um, the, the elites, the ruling elites will accept um, something along the lines of a twenty first century fascism, so this is you know this is the moment we 're in i, I 'm optimistic i 'm optimistic because're seeing we 're seeing an upsurge of mass struggle and we 're seeing a radicalization, especially the youth especially. But I think we also need to objectively acknowledge the danger that we face at this time.
0: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves, Marcus Lopez and Fabiana Hirsch, interviewing Dr. William Robinson, professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the author of the forthcoming book, The Global Police State. You're listening to part two of a two-part interview on American fascism and authoritarianism in the midst of race, pernicious capitalism, and the state violence of the American empire. We want to remind listeners that they can support KPFK by visiting the KPFK website and choosing from a variety of premium items or calling 818-985-5735 or you can pick up our featured premium item by Greg Palace, the book How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters, for $125. And now back to the interview with Dr. William Robinson on American fascism and authoritarianism in the midst of race, pernicious capitalism, and the state violence of the American empire.
2: One of the things... Professor Robinson, was the question of this nature of how capitalism functions. And you mentioned accumulation. We talked about that. But could you speak to the question of social relations? And that is to say, can present-day corporate America provide the necessities of life for the majority of American people?
1: No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Capital, capital, and then capitalists or corporate America, which are the agents of capital have one single objective, and it's to accumulate more and more profit, to accumulate capital. And for that, they need to exploit. And the more that they can exploit, the more capital they accumulate. And for that, they need to seize resources. They need to seize, you know, when they build these pipelines, because they're they're appropriating indigenous resources. So capital cannot and will not, and has no, no, no drive whatsoever. And it's not part of the story of capitalism to meet social and human needs. If that happens, it's because reform and control is forced on capital and the capitalist class and the corporate elite by mass struggle and by the strength of workers and poor people mobilizing and organizing. So the only gains that have ever been made in the history of the United States, in the history of 500-year, 30-year history of world capitalism, has been gains that have been forced on the ruling groups by mass struggle from below. So if some of our needs are met, if things get a little better moving out of the pandemic, it's because we forced that on the ruling groups. But in and of itself, capital has only one objective, to nakedly and ruthlessly accumulate capital and ever more profit. So we have in, say, by 2026, the prediction is now that Jeff Bezos will be the first trillionaire on the planet at a time when two billion people are moving into hunger and starvation and absolute immiseration. So that's the face of capital absent that force us forcing change.
3: Professor Robinson One thing to consider in light of a lot of where this discussion has gone, thinking about the fact that COVID is obviously knows no borders. As we've seen, it's affected the entire world. And maybe in one of the lessons that we can learn in the process of fighting global capitalism is somehow having a struggle that's truly international. In Mm -hmm. order to, you know, we were talking about the last time about the Zapatista analysis of capitalist hydra. And that's a really apt analysis. And perhaps the best way to be fighting against it short term and long term, as you were explaining earlier, is
1: to have it be an international phenomenon. Absolutely. I, but not just myself, many of us have been arguing for the last few decades that capital has gone global, capital recognizes no borders. And so our struggles need to be transnational. They need to be global struggles. We've all heard the the expression that um, think globally, act locally. Absolutely. But also think locally and act globally. Right? Both of them. So we need social movements and leftist political parties need to coordinate the struggles across borders in all regions of the world. And that also requires that we have some type of a minimal program that social movements uh, and left organizations share worldwide, maybe a 10-point program, a 15-point program in which there's a global minimum wage, there's a global tax on on financial speculation across borders. But um, we really need a new international. I think we mentioned in the last interview that the Progressive International was formed just a few months ago, and it's based in social movements across borders, and it's gonna push beyond what the World Social Forum achieved in terms of uh, some type of a collective platform. And that's very, very positive, but we need even uh, more than that. So I could not agree with you more that if we're to beat back uh, and fight against global capitalism, we need to think about transnationalizing our struggles. And of course, the Zapatistas have always acknowledged that. By the way, by the way, excuse me, I just mentioned, so has the indigenous movement. In Latin America, the indigenous movement, I mean, they're they're struggling locally, but the indigenous have been most transnationalized. Both both the global feminist and women's movement and the indigenous movement worldwide have been the most transnational and the clear and the need for this transnational struggle. I can't
2: go without saying that You mentioned at the beginning of the interview about your new book. What's the title and what's the subject matter?
1: The title is The Global Police State. Um, It will be released officially on August 3rd. It's already up on uh, Amazon. And the topic is just what it sounds like. It's uh, everything really that we've discussed in these last, in the first interview, the first part of the interview and now uh, in this part. But it's really warning, it's documenting, analyzing. And some theory there, and yes, we need theory because we need to understand theoretically what's going on. But it's documenting, analyzing, and warning against the rise of this um, global police state, and making some suggestions near the end on how we fight back.
2: Now, I'm going to ask you a little bit teaser of this because maybe it's not fair. You see any parallels with the beginning forms of the the National Socialist uh, Party within Germany during the 20s, and what's going on now? You see any parallels, and please educate us about. What are the parallels and what are the, is is there any differences?
1: Right. Well, the parallels, I mean, it jumps in our face right now with it. We can call both the um, private, you know, the right wing militias, civilians, the far right wing civilians that are are organized, you know, to open up the economy and um, attacking immigrants, but especially these paramilitary forces that have been sent to Portland. To Portland, Those are the brown shirts. For the listeners that don't know what brown shirts refer to, the Nazis, when they were still rising to power, they still weren't in government, they organized these paramilitary forces, and they linked up with the far right elements within the German police and army, and those were the brown shirts, because they literally wore brown shirts, and they attacked the left, they attacked socialists, communist, uh, gay people, uh, wrote, wrote Romani, um, and so we're seeing this, these brown shirts right here, uh, in in, uh, the United States. But there's also a lot of differences. We don't wanna say that this is Germany in the 1930s. The thing that it, the, the, the parallel here is that fascism is a particular response to capitalist crisis. And it's a response which promises to restore security and to resolve the problems of those sectors of the population that are reeling and really suffering uh, in the in the face of the crisis of capitalism, but not all sectors of the population. A portion in Germany that would be so-called Aryan Germans were going kind of Their problems would be. The fascists promised that their problems would be resolved at the expense of Jews and socialists and communists and everyone else. Here in the United States, Trump represents that. He's promising that the problems that the white sectors the privileged sectors of the working class, they're incredibly suffering now in the face of capitalist crisis. And his promise is, I'll resolve your problems, but at the expense of and creating scapegoats among all the rest, especially uh, immigrants, racially oppressed groups, indigenous. Uh, so there are a lot of parallels, but there's also a lot of um, a lot of differences. I don't know how much time we have to get into the uh, differences, but we definitely s- see the the, the, these underlying parallels between the rise of fascism and in Germany and Italy in the 1930s, the late 1920s, 1930s, uh, and the rise of what I call 21st century fascism in the United States, but in other countries around the world as well at this time. And it is in both cases, it's a response to the crisis of capitalism, and capitalism is in its deepest crisis now in a century.
2: And finally, Professor Robinson, what do you want to leave the listeners with?
1: Uh, gosh, that's too big. I wouldn't even know how to uh, respond. But I think we need to be optimistic. We need to understand that this rise of 21st century fascism and this assault of the from above that we're experiencing is defensive in the larger picture and defensive in that it is a response to our mobilization and our upsurge from below. Um, the anti-racist um insurrection that took place in the wake of the murder of George Floyd uh, is the first large-scale uprising anywhere in the world against global police state that global police state was showcased and it still is being showcased in this uprising but it is a response to our to, to us from from, uh, from below so we need to remain optimistic we need to form very broad uh, coalitions and alliances, and yes, we need to deepen our critique of capitalism and recognize that in the long run, this, we need to overthrow capitalism to resolve all of these problems and all of these forms of oppression. And if that sounds outdated, no, it's not. This is actually, um, critically, this is, this is how we need to move forward. The moment of silence is over.
0: And that was Dr. William Robinson, Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Global Police State. And this was part two of a two-part segment. He's speaking on American fascism and authoritarianism in the midst of race, pernicious capitalism, and the state violence of the American empire. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Dr. William Robinson. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been one of your hosts for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time.
1: For the innocent you can't justify Why your freedom manifests on their graves
3: And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains After all the lies and the empty promises, we take a stand on the land that you tried to bury us. For all the pain and all the suffering, we take a stand, we take a stand, we sleep cage against our fear. What we've been told Wearing
2: our souls on the thread
3: The moment of silence is over